On the morning of Tuesday, September 11th, 2001, a series of terrorist attacks took the lives of 2,996 people, injured 6,000 others. Four passenger airlines were hijacked by 19 Al-Qaeda terrorists, and two of those airlines flew into the Twin Towers in New York City of the World Trade Center. And as those towers fell, history was forever changed. The city, the country, and the world was reshaped. Something else happened after 9-11, though. People went to church. A lot of people. I remember my old pastor telling me how the, the Wednesday, after 9-11, the Wednesday prayer meeting, I think it was the day after, was packed. Everyone just showed up. And people were looking for, for comfort. A lot of people, though, were looking for answers. Many were asking, how could God allow this? Why didn't God prevent this? Surely he could have. Why did he let this happen? This question eventually became the topic of the news cycle. And so you had guys like Larry King who were interviewing a panel of various religious leaders, asking them all, how could a a God who is supposed to be good and powerful let something like this happen? Many have had that question, but 9-11 proved to be a powerful, in-your-face reminder of the problem of evil. In fact, for most people, whenever they suffer, whenever tragedy strikes their family, they have this question, how could God let this happen? The question is, as old as scripture itself, most people believe that the oldest book of the Bible by authorship is Job. And if that's the case, then that the first book of the Bible ever written was given to deal entirely with this question, this issue of evil and suffering in the world. How do you explain it? How is evil compatible with a God who can prevent it and who should want to prevent it? Many people are not satisfied with the answers the Bible gives. Therefore, some redefine and reshape God into an image more palatable with man, one that defends God from the charge that he is ultimately responsible for all things, including evil. But the end result is simply not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is is not evil, but he is unashamedly in charge of evil. Others simply cannot stomach such a God at all. So because of this problem of evil, they reject God altogether. And many would, would use this as their primary reason or excuse for not believing in any God at all. Many list the reality of suffering as, as their reason for rejecting God. I knew a guy who, whose sister died of leukemia when she was three. And afterward, he would say, I just can't believe in a God who would let that happen. And this was his reason for not believing in God. Is there an answer, though? Do we as Christians have an answer for this? Do you have an answer? What would you say? Did you know the the solution to the problem of evil? Are we left to forever wonder and ignorance? Or do we just live in this contradiction that God exists, evil exists, we don't know how they both exist together? Does scripture leave us ill-equipped to reconcile the two? Well, I want you to know that no, it, it does not. And to the contrary, God's word completely equips us with knowledge and understanding and truth. It provides a thorough answer to the so-called problem of evil. And as Christians, you can't afford not to know it. It's only a matter of time before you suffer. And so what then? Are you going to doubt God 
and deny God because of your suffering? Is that, is that all it takes? No, but I, rather, I would rather have you built up and encouraged by the truth that you stand firm and, and even so equipped that you might be able to give an answer to those who do doubt. Every time something bad happens, some people doubt. They question. The questions continue. And that's why we're talking about this, by the way. This is our final leftover question from those Q&A messages we did several weeks ago. I've been doing these Q&A messages from time to time since 2013. This is the first time I should say that the problem of evil has ever come up. It's, it's never come up before in these Q&A sermons, surprisingly. But this time, two people had the question. And one person asked, why is there evil in the world? Simple as that. And the other asked, how do you respond when someone says they could not believe in a God who allows people to suffer when he's able to prevent these things from happening? And these are both really just different ways of asking the same question. The old question of how do you understand, how do you reconcile this problem of evil? These questions need a full-length answer, though, and so that's why we're here. We've saved this for now to we can devote an entire message to biblically addressing these questions, giving them an answer. And that's our goal this morning, to peer into this problem in faith, that we might be encouraged knowing the purpose and the place of evil in the world, and also that we might be better equipped to, to graciously deal with those and help those who struggle with the problem of evil. You need not run from the problem of evil and fear, but rather face it head on by faith using scripture, and God will lead you to a place of understanding and peace and comfort and even worship, greater worship. Now to get things started, let's make sure we just understand what we're talking about. Well, what is this problem of evil that I keep referencing? It's been stated in many forms, but most of the times it's, it's stated in this syllogism. It, it goes like this. You know, if God exists, and if God is all-powerful, meaning he has the power to stop evil, and if he's all-good, meaning he would want to stop evil, then evil shouldn't exist. But since evil does exist, then God must not exist, or he must not be all-powerful or all-good. There's, there's variations, but that's, that's the basic argument. You can't have all four of these assertions together at the same time. That God exists, that he's all-powerful, he's all-good, yet evil exists. All four shouldn't be able to work together, some would say. People have trouble reconciling all, <clears throat> all four of these basic truths. Now, we also need to clarify what we mean by evil. And here there are two basic categories of evil. First, there is natural evil. This is the impersonal evil in nature that stems from a fallen world. From the microscopic scale, viruses, AIDS, cancer, to the widespread scale, earthquakes, fires, hurricanes. The earth seems to make it around the sun just fine, but on the planet itself, a lot of bad things happen. And it results in suffering and sickness and death. Secondly, there's moral evil, natural evil. Secondly, moral evil. This evil is personal in nature and concerns God's moral creatures, namely humans and fallen angels. 
Moral evil includes all of the sin, wickedness, and rebellion that characterize fallen humanity and the fallen angels. As creatures who have a will, we can use our will to oppose God's will. That's the definition of sin. We can be agents of evil, such that I would say that most of the suffering on earth comes from other people. So anyway, when we speak of evil, this is mostly what we're talking about, natural evil, moral evil. Put together, there's, there's a lot of it. There's a lot of bad things happen. Bad things happen, bad people happen, and the result is just sickness and suffering and pain and hardship and hurt and ultimately death. And again, this is a problem because a good and powerful God, he's supposed to be in charge of all things, right? So we're asking, if God is so good, why is the world so bad? If God is love, why is there so much evil in the world? If he's almighty, why doesn't he prevent or stop evil from happening? This is the problem of evil. Now that we better understand what we're talking about here and the terms we're dealing with, I want to continue next and just go through some of the unbiblical answers. Just kind of get out of the way all the answers that just don't work. They're not answers at all. They go against God's word. They're, they're trying to solve this problem, uh, but they, they get it wrong. So let's begin. In fact, you can learn much just by exploring and, and rejecting all the bad answers, seeing how they, they really answer nothing. And I'll just mention, you know, throughout history, to try and solve this problem of evil, most people, they've taken to simply deny, uh, to deny one of the four assertions we have here. Remember, the, these four basic truths we're trying to fit together, that God exists, he's all-powerful, he's all-good, yet evil exists. And so most people, to try and solve this problem, they just deny one of the four. They pick one of the four, they deny it, problem solved. And I guess technically that would be problem solved. Of course, they, it's no solution at all when you deny God. But just you should be aware of them. Let's cover some of these wrong answers. Wrong answer number one, deny that evil exists. Deny that evil exists. If, if evil doesn't exist, there's no problem of evil. I know this sounds crazy, but there are people who truly believe this. That evil is just an illusion, or it's a matter of perception. You'll hear this from some Buddhists and also the Christian scientists. Mary Baker Eddy, the, the founder of Christian science, went so far as to teach that evil is nothing, and death and sickness, they're just illusions. They don't actually exist. Now, as an interesting personal note, my father was raised in Vermont in Christian science. All of his family were Christian scientists. Very bizarre. Remember, they reject sickness. It's not even a real thing. So they're against modern medicine, really all medicine. So I guess the fact that my dad became a doctor goes to show he wasn't convinced by their claims. He was shunned by the family, of course. He rejected Christian science because their worldview does not accord with reality. Evil is everywhere. It's, it's all too real. And it's just not sufficient to pretend it doesn't exist. You can try and play these metaphysical games, but that's only going to convince the very weak-minded because sooner or later, everyone encounters evil and suffering. And it sure feels real. It sure seems quite real when it comes to your house. And there's really no biblical precedent for understanding evil 
as an illusion. And even if it were an illusion, we'd still have to ask, why would God create and allow such a terrible illusion that that hurts so many people? Sadly, though, my dad never found an answer to the problem of evil. And to this day, this is still his top reason that he gives uh, for why he doesn't believe in God. And I think we can do better, though, than to deny that evil exists, right? We can't force people to accept our answer, but we can give a better answer than evil doesn't exist. And before we do that, though, let's, let's continue and add a second wrong answer. Wrong answer number two. Deny that God is all-powerful. To deny that God is all-powerful. Instead, some people, they'll admit, okay, evil exists, and, and we want to believe in God. God exists too, but you know, maybe he's not all-powerful. So he can't, he can't do anything about it. He can't stop evil. He can't prevent evil. That would explain the problem of evil. They place some limitation on God's power to explain the existence of evil. This view is, in a way, popularized in 1980 by Harold Kushner's book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Kushner was a conservative Jewish rabbi. But his son died at an early age, by a, a, suffering from a degenerative disease. So he wrestled with this problem of evil. How could God let this happen? And the solution he found was, well, God's not in control. When bad things happen to good people, it's not because God intended it or planned it. God is not sitting in heaven choosing who gets cancer. Evil exists because we live in a fallen world where chaos reigns. And chaos reigns because God lost control of this world after the fall. And so because of the fall, God can't prevent or stop all evils. So Kushner chooses to abandon the omnipotence and the sovereignty of God in order to, to bail out the, the goodness and the love of God. But you won't find any such picture of the impotence of God in Scripture. In the end, this theodicy ends up losing more than it gains. Because, yeah, I guess it gains a solution to the problem of evil, but it loses all hope that evil will ever be overcome. If God is so weak... How do we know he's not ultimately going to lose to evil? If he can't stop evil now, can he ever? This is a false God, though, a God who's not worthy of worship. It's a God not found in the Bible as well. Now, that being said, there are some evangelical Christians who likewise go down this road, the road of, in some way, denying or lessening God's power to answer the problem of evil. And this explains Arminianism. Understand, Arminianism was created and came to be specifically to answer the problem of evil. Arminius himself, he was trying to, to save God, to defend God, to rescue God, to get God off the hook for being ultimately responsible for evil in the world. And the way Arminius and many others have done that to, how do you get God off the hook for being responsible for evil? Well, by putting man squarely on the hook. It, it's all our fault. You see, they say, when God created us, he chose to give us this completely autonomous, libertarian free will, meaning we can do anything and, and God can't control our will, hence truly free will. But such a free will produces the possibility of evil. It means... We can choose to do evil. God, he can't prevent it or control it. 
He can't overturn our free will by definition. But, you know, God was willing to pay this high price because, you know, really the greatest good is, is giving humans freedom. Man's freedom is, is really the greatest good. So God was willing to accept the possibility of evil in order to give us this ultimate free will. And that, of course, that makes us responsible for evil, not God. So he's, he's saved from this bad image of being the one ultimately responsible. But this view just doesn't hold up. First, Scripture never teaches that human free will is the greatest good. And second, Scripture never even teaches this libertarian free will, meaning a will that's outside of God's control or sovereignty. That's really just inserting man's philosophy into Scripture. And if you want more on this, just get Q&A 2017 Part 2, because we did this, right? We already covered this. Do we have a will? Yes, of course. And we are free to make choices, which is why God holds us accountable for our actions. But the Bible still presents God as being completely sovereign, even over our choices and our actions. He both knows what we're going to do, and he's planned what we're going to do. Amusingly, though, even after Arminian's exalt man's will and, and, and really diminish God's sovereignty, they still don't answer the problem of evil. Because the fact is, God still created this world. So even if you want to punt the issue and blame evil on man, so it, it's man's free will's fault, or it's Satan's free will's fault. That's, that's where evil really came from. Well, you still have to explain why God created this world, knowing that man and Satan would willingly produce so much evil. Why did God still create a world in which he foresaw man and Satan would, of their own free will, create so much suffering? If God really hates evil, wouldn't he have been better off not to create at all? Or why didn't God create a world in which he foresaw things turning out better, where everyone used their little free will to to choose good, not to rebel and, and do all this evil? Couldn't he have done that? No, but the Armenian is left with a God who knowingly created a world that would produce massive evil and suffering, and now he's really just powerless to control it. This is just another solution that gives up God and gains no real answer to the problem of evil. What's interesting is some Armenians... In recent years, past couple decades, they've recognized some of these fatal flaws in their system, that it doesn't defend the love of God. It doesn't answer the problem of evil. So they've modified their views and they've reshaped God. And the latest evolution is called open theism. It's really just the next step of Arminianism to its logical conclusion. And they believe that the future is open, that not even God knows the future. They deny God's omniscience and foreknowledge in order to answer the problem of evil. You see, God didn't know how things were going to turn out. That's the nature of free will. He can't know what you're going to choose. If your choice is truly free, he can't even know what you're going to do. So when God planted Adam and Eve in the garden, he had the best of intentions, but he was taking a risk. He doesn't know how things are going to turn out here. And so he's not responsible for any of the evil in the world. You know, he's doing his best to fix things, and he's going to show his power by making things turn out for good. 
But, you know, I'm pretty sure the Bible says God declares the end from the beginning. You know, I know theological liberals, they're very desperate to create this inoffensive God, but all they've done is reshaped God into their own image. But this is not the God of the Bible. And again, it's ironic because in trying to answer the problem of evil, they formed a God who himself cannot answer the problem of evil. I mean, what assurance do we have that this weak God is going to stop evil with this limited power and now limited knowledge? How can we be sure he's going to fix things and win in the end? The universe is out of control and God is he's doing his best. But since they've made man's will supreme over God's will, who is to say God is going to overcome evil in the end? You, you can keep this God. Uh, I'll stick with the God of the Bible. Because any solution to the problem of evil that gives up the essential nature of God, it's really no better than wrong answer number three. And let's add one more wrong answer here. Deny that God exists. Deny that God exists. Eh, there's no problem of evil if God doesn't even exist, right? And this is the conclusion of the atheist that at least the atheist recognizes if you're going to say God is not really all-powerful or all-knowing, you might as well say he doesn't even exist. At least in that regard, they're, they're being consistent. But for them, evil is very real, and so they justify that in the end, well, God must not even be there because he, he would have stopped it by now, right? And many people throughout history have used this as their reason or excuse for denying God. But I'll have to say here there's also great irony because... Although the atheist is too blind to see, if God does not exist, then evil does not exist. In other words, the irony here is that while the atheist uses the existence of evil to deny the existence of God, he fails to realize that without God's existence, there could be no such thing as evil. I don't want to get too off topic, but I'll quickly try and explain that. Just the existence of a universal moral standard is actually a strong proof for the existence of God. Just think, what is the atheistic worldview? Well, we are all just evolved cosmic space dust floating around in this eternal universe. Life has no meaning in this universe. There's nothing after death. Nothing has meaning in this cold universe. And in such a universe, though, you can make no case for absolute morality, absolute right and wrong. The universe is not moral. So when a child dies of leukemia, who's to say that's really evil? Or if a child lives, who's to say that's really good? The universe doesn't care. If a bunch of atoms arranged into the form of a human continue to exist in that form, you're just a bunch of particles and atoms anyway. There's, there's no meaning to anything. There, there is no right and wrong or good and bad. What does, what does the universe know of morality? Nothing has meaning. Now, of course, this is an unlivable, inconsistent, and self-contradictory worldview. The atheist uses evil to deny God's existence, but fails to realize he's actually depending on the existence of God to even define evil, to even make sense of you know, what is right and wrong and good and evil. Only having an absolute standard of good 
and evil, and that's what God is, can you even argue for evil to exist? I know that might be a lot for you to take in, but the long story short, it's a, it's a self-defeating idea to say that because evil exists, God must not exist. But that's the self-defeating nature of all atheism. We'll leave that for another time. Well, let's move on. I think for now we've sufficiently explored and exposed some of the wrong answers to the problem of evil. You're not going to find any truths here to explain our reality by going outside of Scripture or by denying the God of Scripture. But now I think it's time for us to get some real answers, and we're going to find those answers inside of Scripture, not out. Because God has given us insight into his relationship with evil in this world. And to start, let's begin by affirming some basic truths. First, the Bible is clear that, that yes, evil exists, but God is not evil, and God does not do evil. God is not evil, and he does not do evil. Psalm 5, verse 4, says, You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. Habakkuk 1.13 says of God, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. God is perfectly righteous. He takes no pleasure in evil itself. But does that mean God is impotent against evil? Does this mean evil is outside of God's control? How would you answer that question? Is evil outside of God's control? No, of course not. Evil is not outside of God's control. To the contrary, Scripture itself presents God being sovereign over all things. That includes sin and suffering and evil. Let's continue to affirm some biblical truth. How about natural evil? Is God sovereign over natural evil? Take a famine. A lot of people suffer and die in a famine. But Psalm 105 verse 16 says that God caused and raised up a famine in the land during the time of Joseph so that Joseph could be exalted in Egypt. Or in the time of Elijah, God sent a drought that lasted three years to show himself mighty when he sent rain thereafter. God's in charge of all this. In fact, remember back when God called Israel to be his people? During that time, he warned them that if they disobeyed his word, if they broke his covenant, he was going to chastise them and discipline them as a nation. How? Well, Leviticus 26, God said he would send upon them fever and consumption, drought, and famine, plague, and pestilence. He would raise up nations around them to shatter them with the sword. Countless lives would be lost, and the nation would be exiled. All by God's doing. And by the way, that all happened in Israel's history. They did break the covenant. They did disobey God. And so he did bring upon them all of these judgments, and he used lots of natural evil to do so. In fact, God even used moral evil to judge Israel, and that he raised up the Assyrians and the Babylonians to, to judge Israel, but they were extremely vile and wicked pagan nations. Not God judged them too, but in the time, though, he used them as a tool in his hand. And God is not evil. It sure seems like he controls it, though. 
I don't think there's a better example of this than the book of Job. You're going to have to read it for yourself, but you remember all the suffering that Satan inflicted upon Job. Job lost all of his health. He lost all of his wealth, his possessions, and his ten children were all killed at once. But recall that it was God who gave Satan full permission to do all this to Job, to afflict Job. In fact, it was God who brought Job up in the first place to Satan, and Satan couldn't do a single thing to Job without God saying so. It sounds like full control to me. If you have trouble with this right now, you're sitting there and this, this, this bothers you, just remember this, that while it's wrong for you and me to take human life, it is not wrong for God to take life. Do you understand that? That's because he's the creator. He gives life and he takes life at will. And it's not wrong for him to do so. Psalm 139 verse 16 says that all of your days were ordained and written down in God's book before you were even born. You know what that means is your birth date and your death date were already written down before you were even born. This is God's sovereignty, and it's not wrong for him to take life. He's the potter, you're just a piece of clay. This explains a, a big verse like Deuteronomy 32 verse 39. Where God says, see now that, that I am he, and there is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. There's no one who can deliver from my hand. Just think about this. Think about how you treat lower life forms. How many times have you committed mass genocide against ants? You laugh, but it's true. You know, without batting an eye, you will murder an entire race of ants or termites. You will tent the house and kill them all. Simply because, what, they chose the wrong place to find some food? That's it? And think about all the suffering you've inflicted upon them. No one goes to jail for this. There's no penalty. You laugh about it. But just think, that's because we have no problem taking lower life forms. They're a lower form of life. They're not even close to human life. We don't bat an eye at taking their life. No one goes to jail for mowing their lawn, even though they just inflicted harm on millions of blades of grass. It's a lower life form. We, we think nothing of it. And so just understand that, I know we humans, we like to think a lot of ourselves. But to God, we are an infinitely lower life form. We're dust. We're mere clay. And so God does no wrong in giving life and then taking it away whenever he wants. He's God. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Daniel 4, verse 35, says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven. You're just like, we're all just like termites, and God is free to throw up the tent whenever he wants. And thankfully, God is not arbitrary in his actions. He's just. He's righteous. He does what is right. It's just that we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of his glory. And so he's just to take us out whenever he wants. 
It's only just. All deserve judgment. So much so that once upon a time, God did that. He tented the earth. He executed the entire planet when he sent the global flood, except a few people. And we think of floods as evil, but God wielded this as his righteous judgment. See, in reality, we're the evil ones. We have violated his holy will. He's only just to judge. Now, hearing this, you might ask, how does this not make God himself evil? But you have to realize, what is truly evil to God? The answer is disobedience to his perfect will. That's really the the ultimate definition of evil before God. Anything that is against his holy will. Sin. Rebellion. That is evil. God doesn't do any of those things. God is not the primary cause of sin. We are. We sin. We rebel. We disobey. Thereby we create evil. God allows that. He's even ordained that. Yet since we're the ones who do evil by choice, that's why we're the ones held accountable for evil. So the conclusion so far, though, is, well, God is not evil, and he does not do evil. He is fully in charge of it. God has allowed it. He's ordained it. He's planned for it. There's no conclusion but to say this, that evil exists according to the will of God. That evil exists according to the ultimate will of God. To say otherwise would be to say that there's some force in the universe more powerful than God that's thwarting his will. He doesn't want it to exist, but he can't help it. No. While liberal theologians are fine with that, scripture is not. Scripture is unashamed in promoting a God whose will reigns over all, whose will is supreme. That there's no conclusion. That in some way, evil exists according to his will. And that's just going to lead us to a next big question then. If that's the case, why? You're going to say, well, why? Why has God allowed evil? Why has he included evil in his plan for this world? Realize so far, using scripture, we've done nothing but affirm our four basic assertions to the fullest. God exists. He is all-powerful. He is all-good. Yet evil exists. But how can we say that the same God who hates evil has sovereignly ordained it? And the answer comes not by denying any one of these four assertions, but by adding a fifth. And so let's do that now. A fifth assertion here. Number five, God has a good reason for allowing evil to exist. I mean, it sounds so simple, it can't be true, but you'll have to hear me out. God has a good reason for allowing evil to exist. It really solves the problem the more you think about it. Now, I know you're going to wonder what that good reason is, and Scripture tells us this as well. And here's where we find the same reason for all things, which is what? It's God's glory. It's God's glory. God has made all things, planned all things, and ordained all things for his glory. And that includes the existence of evil. And I should mention, unbelievers, they hate this answer. But that's to be expected because they neither understand nor value God's glory. I mean, they think of themselves essentially as God. They hate God. 
But we know that God's glory is the most important thing there is. God himself is the most valuable being in existence. He's supreme. He's exalted above all creation. And the magnification of his name, that's the greatest good. That's what God's glory is after all. It's his perfect nature on display. And like I said, that's the reason for which he made all things. You realize that? Psalm 19 verse 1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. He created the whole universe to display and reflect his glory. That includes us. Isaiah 43 verse 7, God speaks of those whom he says, I have created for my glory. He even made us for his glory. And over and over in scripture, God acts. And why does he do what he does? Over and over. For his own name's sake. For his own name's sake. So much that in heaven, you know what they say in heaven? All people say this. Revelation chapter 4 verse 11. They say, worthy are you, Lord, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. His will is supreme. God made all things for his glory. He acts for his glory. Understand, if God valued us more than his own glory, that would mean we are supreme and, and worth all things. But, but we're not. He is. He is the supreme one. We're just clay. And so ultimately, in the end, it's only appropriate that we too exist to do what? To give him glory. And that's why 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us to do all things to the glory of God. All things. That's the purpose of our lives as well. Now here's where the existence of evil comes in. God has ordained and allowed all evil. Why? For his glory. That his nature, character, and attributes might be put on display. His mercy, grace, justice, and righteousness would be unknown apart from evil. They would exist, but they would not be on display. God cannot show his wrath and his righteous judgment without rebels. He can't show his mercy and his grace without needy sinners. God created this universe to showcase his glory, and he chose to use a backdrop of darkness to let his light shine. Again, the mind of the natural man hates this thought because it means God is God and he is not. But scripture makes this so clear. Just think about John chapter 9. We find a man who was born blind. Talk about a life of suffering. And we wonder, why was he born blind? And Jesus tells us why this man was born blind in John 9 verse 3. Jesus said, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus tells us this man was born blind so that God could be glorified on that day when Jesus healed him. That's a pretty big thought. Or think about John 11. You have Lazarus, Christ's friend, and he was going to die. Jesus could have healed him, but on purpose, Jesus let him die. Why would he do that? John 11, 4. 
Jesus said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified by it. Jesus let him die so that he could show up four days later and show his power by raising him from the dead to God's glory. And so it goes for all things. Paul makes this very clear over in Romans. In fact, why don't you turn to Romans 9 if you want. I've been going through a lot of verses, but we'll, we'll get to Romans 9 in a second. Romans chapter 9. I'll first read for you Romans 3, 5 and 6. Romans 3, 5. It says, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? He's talking about Israel in the context. But we know that all of our unrighteousness, all of our evil, does what? It demonstrates God's righteousness. Remember that word, demonstrates. Just keep it in your mind. How does it demonstrate his righteousness? Because God doesn't tolerate unrighteousness forever. But as he judges it, he proves himself righteous. You see, our sin and rebellion provide an occasion for God to display his true righteousness, to show us what true righteousness really looks like. This works in the other direction. Think of Romans 5.8. It says God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Same word, demonstrate. Now, what is God demonstrating? This time, he's not demonstrating his wrath. Now, he's demonstrating his love. How? Well, by sending Jesus to die for sinners. But realize this glorious plan of salvation could not exist without sinners who needed gracious redemption. You see, without sin, God's saving love would never be on display. It would still be there, it just would not be on display. God is doing all things for the demonstration of his glory. Now, if you want the big guns, you turn to Romans 9. Romans 9, look at verse 22 and 23. He says, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, Endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Here's that word demonstrate again. God was willing to demonstrate his wrath and show his power by judging all the wicked, but he showed them a patience for a time. He withheld that judgment for a time. Why? That he might save these vessels of mercy. Why? All to make known the riches of his glory. That's what it all comes down to, and it all comes back to. God hates evil, but he was willing to endure mankind's rebellion against his holiness. He was willing to tolerate man's disobedience against his perfect will for a time, all so that God might be even further glorified as he saves and judges. His salvation and his judgment both 
work together to just what? Make known. You see that word over and over again? To demonstrate, to make known, to put on display his glory. If you have a problem with this, look at verse 14. Backtrack to verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. There's no injustice with God, is there? He says in the strongest terms in the Greek, may it never be. Rather, everything goes according to his perfect will. That includes choosing some to receive mercy, that they might live to the praise of the glory of his grace. And this also includes leaving others to judgment, that God's power might be seen through them. Verse 17 makes this clear. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. This is such a clear statement of purpose on why, on why God does what he does. Why did God raise up Pharaoh? Remember back in the Exodus, Pharaoh was a wicked guy. He was evil. He was this wicked pagan king. But God raised him up. Now, God didn't make Pharaoh do evil. He never coerced him to do evil. Pharaoh made all those choices on his own. Yet in God's sovereignty, he ordained all of that and ordered Pharaoh's choices according to his will. Why? It says to demonstrate. Demonstrate what? God's power through Pharaoh. That as God judged Pharaoh, as God did not show him mercy, but left him to suffer the fate of his own sins and judged him, that God would be magnified in showing his power through him in that judgment. Also that God's name would be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. God saw fit to leave Pharaoh in his sin and to use him as a vessel of wrath for his own glory. And this was according to his will. He has mercy on whom he desires, and he has compassion, or rather he uh, hardens those whom he desires. You think it's not fair? Look at verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? You see, God does no wrong. He has the right to do whatever he pleases with his creation. That includes allowing evil that his greater purposes might be accomplished. And, and his greatest purpose is his own glory, the display, the demonstration, the magnification of his own glory in this universe 
that he's created. It's all for his own name. If you don't like it, you can, you can try and argue with your maker, but you can see how that worked out for Job. You will quickly put your hand over your mouth and repent in dust and ashes sooner or later and learn that a mere speck of dust, you can't contend with God Almighty. You can't challenge his ways. Evil is not a surprise to God. It's not a disruption or interruption, but it's part of his plan to put his glory on display in the universe. His justice and mercy and wrath and righteousness and grace, they're all magnified by the existence of evil. And the ultimate example of this is the cross of Christ itself, which was the greatest act of pure evil ever. Yet according to Acts 2.23, it happened according to the predetermined plan of God. He planned and orchestrated the evil of the cross. Why? To bring about the greatest good. And the exaltation of Christ, the exaltation of his own glory. God willed that evil men should nail the Son of God to the cross. Now, I trust you can see how that was a function of God's greater glory, right? And so it goes with all things, whether you can see it or not. That's what he's doing with all things. The real mystery in all this is why would God redeem some dust? Why send God the Son to suffer evil and to be made sin and to die on the cross for us? Right? All this really diminishes us, but then God in his mercy, he, he exalts us in a way by, by what he did for us. Meaning, it's just a marvel of God's grace. At the very least, to us, it sure makes him worthy of all glory and honor and praise, like they sing in heaven. And we, who have been saved, we can see, we can appreciate the, the supernova of God's glory on the cross. And we will give him the glory he is due. Everyone eventually will. Everyone eventually is going to be bowing the knee. We're going to do that now because we've, we've seen, we've beheld the glory of the cross. Now, I understand all this can be a hard pill for some to swallow. People don't like the idea that all things, even their suffering, are meant to somehow, in the end, contribute to God's glory. But that's because most people have a high view of self and a low view of God. They believe they're the center of the universe and God exists to serve them. But the more you behold the infinite and the supreme nature of God and his glory, you realize the exact opposite is true. God is the center of the universe and you exist to serve him. And just to finish our time now, I can maybe help your thinking just a little bit more and finish this off by adding a, a sixth assertion. One more. We've been affirming all, all of these assertions so far. Number one, God exists. Number two, he's all-powerful. Number three, he is all-good. Number four, evil exists. Yet number five, God has a good reason in allowing evil. But let's remember number six, God judges all evil in the end. Number six, God judges all evil in the end. You have to remember, evil ends. Evil is a problem for us because it's drawn out over time, but not for God. Think about God's relationship to time. 
our our life, even even all world history, is described in Scripture as momentary, as fleeting. Your entire life is like the, the vapor that rises from a cup of coffee. It's just here and it's gone. It vanishes. That's your whole life to God. It's just it's nothing. And so in God's eyes, it's like He has allowed evil for a nanosecond of time compared to eternity where his righteousness reigns forever. You start thinking about God's relationship to time, and it it has a way of shrinking this so-called problem of evil. At the very least, the Bible testifies that evil is not a problem forever. The real problem people have with evil, I think, is not that it exists, but that it's unanswered. It's like, why is nothing being done about this? That's the problem most have, I think. But understand it, it will be answered. In the end, God puts an end to all evil. Because he is all good. And because he is all powerful, he will bring all evil to judgment. He's going to right all wrongs. Justice will be served. Sin will be condemned. And all evil evildoers who have not turned to Christ will be separated and judged forever. You know, such an eternal perspective really changes how you and I comprehend suffering and evil for those of us in Christ. This is why Paul can say in Romans 8.18 that the sufferings of this present time, they're not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. Or 2 Corinthians 4.17, where he can say that momentary light affliction is producing for us this eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. You see, God is, by his grace, and this is the real marvel, he has willed for us to share in his glory, to behold his glory. That means for us who are in Christ, you know, we will have to endure some real suffering and evil in this life. But I'll tell you this, no one in heaven thinks evil is a problem. They're too busy exalting God's grace. You know, people still ask, though, but why didn't God create a world without evil? And the answer is, he did. That world is coming. It's called the new heavens and the new earth. It's a world without evil. It's an eternal world. It's made perfect. There's no evil. There's no sin. There's no rebellion. There's no sickness. There's no suffering. There's no death in that world. And the highlight of that world is the Lamb, Christ. But remember, he was a lamb who was slain to purchase for God a people. And the point is that if this world of sin didn't come first, well, then that lamb's glory would not be on display. Rest assured, there is no problem of evil to God. Shall not the God of heaven do what is right? Now, do your best to try and understand God and his ways. I mean that seriously. Do your best to understand God and his ways. But remember that God Almighty, he's not accountable to us for anything. So in the end, the best you're going to do is to submit yourself to his perfect will and truth as revealed in scripture. And there you find perfect peace and comfort and rest, knowledge and wisdom, and ultimately worship. Remember when all is said and done, fear God, keep his commandments, 
Most of all, trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's the only way that you will one day get that firsthand taste of what a world without evil is like. It's only for those who are saved by this grace of God in Christ. For now, I think it's fitting for us to end with Paul's words in Romans 11, after he spent chapters reflecting on God's power and sovereignty and wisdom. He says this in Romans 11, 33 through 36. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Our great God in heaven, we we bow before you. We bow our, our hearts and our minds in praise and worship and wonder. Lord, sometimes we can be bewildered and confused. That's because we're just dust. We're, we're creatures. We are limited. We are the ones lacking power and lacking goodness. We try and comprehend you in your ways. Yet, Lord, there is no hope of that apart from your word. And so I pray we learn this morning, no matter what, we must tie ourselves to your truth. There you have given us all we need for life and godliness. You give us answers, truth, and even hope. And Lord, in learning about your supremacy this morning, we find great hope knowing that evil is going to end. It is real. We do suffer. This world has fallen. Bad things happen. And I'm sure many here this morning, they're, they're suffering right now. And that's not good. But we can take greater comfort in a God who works all things for good. For the ultimate good of your glory, Lord, yet by your grace, You've chosen to include us in that good, in redeeming us that we might share and behold your glory. You've saved us to put the lamb on display for all eternity. And we're just thankful that that we will be there among those to, to praise you. Comfort us in these truths, Lord. Deepen our understanding. Just just humble us that we would never doubt you. You're in, you're in heaven. You sit. You do what you please. You know what you're doing. Give us faith. And then by faith, deepen our our understanding, deepen our walk, and, and in the end, Lord, deepen our worship, that we serve God, God Almighty. You're worth all of our lives, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.